This week, the Bank of England raised rates for the third time in as many meetings, while the U.S. Federal Reserve raised rates by a quarter point, while signaling that it would be followed by six more rate hikes this year. Oil prices were down this week, but commodity markets remained chaotic, especially for key inputs like nickel and palladium, which are heavily produced in Russia. In this edition of Commerce Code, Innovating and Enriching Banks' Customer Relationships, a conversation with Campbell Shaw of Cardlytics. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. A new EU law put pressure on Apple's App Store revenues, while Microsoft's cloud services were challenged on EU anti-competition law grounds by a French competitor. Amazon bought movie studio MGM for $6.5 billion after the EU greenlighted the deal. In retail news, Zara's parent company, Inditex, had strong 2021 results. The world's largest fast fashion retailer benefited from revenge shopping as customers returned to the shops. It also had very strong online sales. Walmart announced intention to hire 50,000 workers in the next six weeks. At the same time, Walmart's CTO stated in a blog post that the company would be hiring more than 5,000 technology associates globally this year and adding hubs in both Toronto and Atlanta. In payments news, Digital wallet usage in the bricks-and-mortar environment continues to rise. A March report from Payments.com on digital economy payments finds that spending at restaurants is now roughly equal between cash and digital wallets. In 2021, consumers spent $8.1 billion at restaurants using their digital wallets and $8.3 billion using cash. Today on the show, we'll learn more about banks' customer relationships during difficult times by speaking with Campbell Shaw of Cardlytics. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on Commerce Code again. Where are you joining us from? It's great to speak, Dan. I'm pleased to say I'm in the London office, and it's a very sunny, almost spring-like day outside. That is amazing, and that feels so different than what I think you could have said a month or two ago. Or even yesterday, maybe. Right. Well, look, thank you for being with us and want to just dive in on consumer cost and inflation. Energy bills, food prices, national insurance costs are rising. Consumers are facing just growing financial pressures. Nothing about the situation in Eastern Europe is going to improve that, obviously, in terms of the price of oil, etc. And that's changing consumers' relationships with their banks. And so I'd love to get your perspective on what will the impact of that cost of living squeeze be on banking? It is changing things, but it's almost a seamless transition from the previous big challenge of the pandemic, which revolutionized the opportunity for banks to engage with their customers. The banks are now very much in conversation with their customers about this type of environment that we find ourselves in. Given the two years that there's been so much change to our working practice, ability to work, as well as anything else, they are now very firmly the backstop in terms of where customers go for help. I'm pleased to say that there is a huge amount of traction in the banks themselves to be able to respond to this. They know that they need to show that they understand the external pressures that customers are on. And they need to prove that they can respond, but also then be there for the short to long term as well. So they're ready to flex their arrangements, I think, with how people bank and live their lives. But they're also given an opportunity to support them through this 
through a variety of propositions and ways of changing people's relationship with money overall. Although it's a very challenging long-term now position that customers find themselves in with prices rising, cost of living going up you know, dramatically, banks actually have an opportunity to support, which is, which is a good thing. So if you've said that banks can be where customers go for help, there's receptivity inside banks for that role, which is great. From your perspective, how do you think banks can really help to support their customers in uncertain times like this? They have a privileged position because the digital revolution and you know mobile banking apps initially have now transitioned to being able to help people regardless of where they're living their lives. So it's no longer you have to log into a website to access your details. There's in-app and out-of-app opportunities to guide customers to support them, but also to bring propositions in those digital estates where people find themselves living their life, whether it be on a website, regardless of whether it's a bank or not, in the mobile banking app where they're transacting and moving money around every day, that they can actually do the, the critical thing that customers are always saying to the financial institutions, show me that you understand who I am. And then when I understand that you get who I am, show me how you can help me. And whether that's with saving them money on the most traditional rudimentary things or helping them budget in different ways, most of all banks have the data to be able to help customers in the worst of times as well as the best of times. Is there a role for loyalty programs, tailored offers, banks have, as you say, plenty of data with which they can do these things. In your view, should they, will they use loyalty programs and tailored offers uh, in a way that helps consumers to let their money go further? I am really passionate inside the office and with every bank person that I meet that they absolutely have to. This industry and marketplace and ecosystem that is now a proven entity should absolutely exist for the ability for banks to help their customers. People need to buy groceries. They need to put fuel in their car. Loyalty programs at their heart help customers save money on things that they need to buy. And the tailoring that you spoke about is incredibly important. And if a customer is deciding to do something, the bank can either get involved in the conversation and boost the cash back because there is money in the ecosystem to fund it in a net positive way and increase the value a customer can get, but also play a part in the next best action that we see a lot now in the UK where a proposition or an offer could come to market to save money on a hotel or a flight, thankfully, now that the, the world is opening up again. And the bank is now playing a part by saying, well, we know you've just bought a holiday or you're going somewhere. We have a travel insurance offer that can also increase your ability to save money because it's here at a discounted rate. So there's that nice cross-pollination now of the program living on its own two feet and helping the customer, but the bank also playing a part in that conversation as well, which makes it really successful. I think like everything in life, if this was easy, it would have happened years ago. I'm interested in your point of view on what's hard about this. What will banks need to adapt to or change in order to be able to do it effectively? It's definitely simple, but not easy. The bank has a number of priorities competing for attention within the bank, but also implementation roadmaps, the legacy transformation that every bank will always be on. Those are incredibly difficult jobs to do when you have a number of different areas all competing for finite resources and finite budgets. 
the thing that we get excited about is when loyalty now is understood, not from the lens of buy this, get that, but actually from the things that we've just been speaking about, about the socially important conversation that the banks can have. And so it's a strategic priority that needs to be looked at, not a tactical this customer has got two pounds this month. There's way more to the programs at a strategic level for the banks that we're now seeing them prioritize. That I think is about relationships and engagement. I personally think relationships are about trust, probably all relationships, but particularly commercial relationships. And I think you probably need trust to do some of the things that you've mentioned, right? So we know you're going on holiday, you might want some insurance. That voice needs to come from a trusted source. And so from your perspective, what do you think banks can do to sort of boost or build engagement and better relationships and trust with their customers? I think it's the fact that they want to have this conversation. The phrase, which isn't new now, a lot of people have seen banks as just dumb pipes. And I think that's a massive disservice to what banks can do to help customers. But they have to start the conversation, whether it's publicly go out and educate customers on the value of engaging with their bank, not just to transfer money from one place to another place, but to help achieve a goal or restrict exposure in, in some facet of their life. For a long time, banks have fought to be relevant, and now they have the perfect chance to get that conversation going of, you've trusted us, and we've proven ourselves to be a secure house for your money and to transact. Now let's add these new innovative propositions, which can enhance and iterate the way that you engage with us. And it could be these new travel hubs, it's absolutely digital loyalty, which enables a customer to just save time and get more value. But visibility and starting the conversation, and it's the same with trust. You earn trust by giving trust. You have to start the conversation by taking ownership of that, not wait for the customer to come to you to ask and be curious as to how you might help. You have to be consistently telling customers how you can help and almost proving the old adage, only when you are bored of talking about something do people actually get it and start to come around to your thinking. Campbell, one last question to close this. This is just an interesting conversation. We are at a moment in time. We're hopefully on the back end of or at some inflection point with the pandemic. We've got the situation in Ukraine and sanctions in Russia and so much going on right now. How active do you think banks are going to be in making changes in the next year or two against the backdrop of all of these uncertainties? Do you expect this to be a moment in time when we're really moving and shifting things or do you think conservatism kicks in? I may have answered this differently if we were at the start. So as the, the context for this is, we're literally rolling from one global challenge to the next. And what I've seen in the last two years gives me confidence that the progress that banks have made in the last two years to just revolutionize the way that they work and that they start to deliver new features and functionalities or new ways to manage your money or new ways to secure your money and have confidence that that is going to continue. Partly because if it stops, they will be irrelevant far quicker than they would have been previously, because that momentum has now built both in banks. But the, the great news is that there are fintechs now coming to fruition that genuinely have value to add together. And it's either in isolation independently, some fintechs are proving, but it's also in collaboration. And so that speed just ever increases of banks being able to almost prepare for the challenge and respond to it, given the economic climate, the, the macro global one. Long story short, I've got real confidence in the future. Great, Campbell. We will uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on Commerce Code. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Coming right up, closing thoughts 
on the future of trust. Campbell and I talked about the role of trust during our conversation. Banks have always traded in the old form of trust, the kind of trust engendered by stone facades combined with the regulation and backing of the government. I think banks will always have some of both of those things, something that implies financial strength and some kind of government imprimatur. But here I want to talk about how trust is changing. If there's one thing kids in our culture know, it's never to get into a stranger's car. But now Uber has millions of us getting into strangers' cars every day. Some people even let their kids use Uber if they're old enough. Now, if you said this to any parent 10 years ago, you were letting your kid get into a stranger's car, one that they found through the Internet. They would call Child Protective Services on you. Before Uber and similar companies are about technology or convenience, they are about trust. These companies have many elements that are designed to engender trust. Driver and customer reviews in the Uber example are part of that approach. But we used to get into strangers' cars even before Uber. They were called taxis. You remember those? And we got into taxis because the taxi commission regulated them and they had a medallion. In both instances for Ubers and for taxis, the key is the presence of trust. We're not getting into just any car. We're getting into a regulated car. In that sense, and this is the critical point here, Uber isn't competing with taxi companies. Uber is competing with the taxi commission. Uber and Lyft succeeded by building trust faster and more efficiently than taxi commissions and then creating an efficient matching market because millions of us were suddenly willing to get into strangers' cars. Now remember, I'm actually talking about the future of banks here. Bear with me. The sharing marketplace, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Eat With. Eat With, yep, that's meals in strangers' homes. It's a lot more interesting through the trust lens. These companies aren't selling a product or a service. They're selling a private alternative to public regulation. They're selling a private alternative to the trust that governments used to create. In that sense, they're competing with the government, which sounds like a weird idea, but it happens more than we think. So take the problem of taxi long hauling, where the taxi driver drives too far and overcharges the passenger. How does a taxi commission handle it? Well, in New York, the passenger merely has to fill out, notarize, and mail a long-route voluntary witness statement. Uber's competitive alternative is the one-star review. It's easier. More importantly, it's way more effective. How many New York cabbies really feared the appearance of a notarized long-route voluntary witness statement? Probably none of them, because it almost never happened. All Uber drivers appear to fear the one-star review. And as a result, we trust, in a way the Uber driver to take us where we want to go safely using a reasonable route. According to a thing called the 2022 Edelman Trust Barometer, financial services is the second least trusted industry sector just ahead of social media companies who are currently solidly in last place. The Edelman Trust Barometer is a really good report. I recommend it. When you read it, it's pretty clear that whatever banks have been doing in the past to create customer trust it's not working right now. But here's the other thing. The industry most trusted by consumers is technology. Followed close behind by education, healthcare, manufacturing, and a bunch of others, the trust barometer measures 16 industry sectors and financial services is 15th in public trust. So we're talking about banks, fintechs, and trust. I think banks have a risk here, and fintechs have an opportunity, or at least it's part of the fintech opportunity. Trust is being developed in a different way than it used to be. Tech companies have a trust advantage. 
I think their ability to create transparency and to flex quickly to what customers want is a big part of their trust advantage. I think the banks that capture some of those capabilities and use them to gain back customer trust will outcompete other banks in the marketplace. I should say here that some of my ideas come from a book called The Trust Revolution. And full disclosure, it was written by a friend of mine named Todd Henderson. If you think the changing market for trust is interesting, I highly recommend The Trust Revolution. To find out more about the latest trends in digital commerce and digital advertising, check out our website, www.digcomall.org. That's www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, take care of yourself and take care of each other. God bless. This is Dan Carell, signing off. Thank you.